Let's open our Bibles. Book of Revelation, if you're new to the Bible, that's the last book at the very end of the New Testament. We start this week the letters to the churches, and, and probably familiar to a lot of you. Uh, just to recap, last week we saw John enter into this vision of the Son of Man, and we said that that vision is not mainly about what Jesus looks like, but what he is like. So these are his character traits, his, his person symbolized in white hair, wisdom, or flaming eyes, purifying gaze, or sun, uh, a face like the sun, so he is the light of heaven. He's pure, bright. So we don't, we don't, when we see Jesus, he's not going to look like this, uh, but he's going to be like this, and he is like this now. So that vision that began uh, in one nine carries all the way through to chapter 4, verse 1. So, John, you'll see little markers in the text, like chapter 4, verse 1, and after these things, sort of a little bit of a different vision, um, so we're kind of now unpacking who Jesus is in chapter 2 and chapter 3 through his words to the churches and to us. This is who he is. This is what he's about. He's praising things. He's criticizing things. It tells you, okay, what does Jesus value? Who is he? So let's read starting in chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. But this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we want to be a repenting people. We know that faith and repentance is not just for the beginning of the Christian life, it's for every day of the Christian life until we go home. And Lord, the truth is, we confess, we do not love you as we ought. We do not love our neighbor as ourself. By your grace, sometimes we do, but we fail. This week we have failed to live out the greatest commandment, the sum of all the other commandments, the sum of the Ten Commandments. Love God and your neighbor. And so for that, we ask your forgiveness. We ask you to cleanse us from all iniquity, make us clean, and make us righteous more and more like Jesus. For we fall short, we miss the mark, and our only hope is Jesus Christ. To be justified, to be made right in you, Lord Jesus, and also to be sanctified, to be progressively made holy as you are holy. 
It is not in ourselves that we trust. So we come admitting freely, openly, we have not passed the test, but we look to you outside of ourselves as the one who has. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would now apply this word to our hearts, that you would convict and encourage. And, and where we need to repent, Lord, show us. Where we need to see your grace at work in our lives, show us that too. May we not be discouraged even in moments of conviction because we know you are with us. We know it is finished for those who trust in Christ. So we leave that to you today, Lord, and we ask your blessing on this, the preaching of your holy word. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to spend the next seven weeks looking at these letters of commendation and criticism that Jesus sends to his churches. In case you were wondering, there's only one head of the church. His name is Jesus. Uh, My title may be senior pastor, but there's only one senior pastor of the church, Jesus. He's your pastor. He's your worship leader this morning. He is the great teacher of his people, and he's handing out report cards. That's what these letters are. They're report cards. Uh, I remember in high school, you used to actually get your report card mailed to you. Anyone, anyone remember that? It was this big moment, the report card comes in the mail. Do they do that still? No, probably not. You have to log into three online portals and have seven passwords, and it's really frustrating and anticlimactic. Whereas when we get it in the mail, it's like, whoa, you know, did I get, a, 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 did I get that C that I needed on the chemistry final? That's what I would be thinking about, or was it a D, and am I in trouble? Um, it, was a, it was a heavy moment because, okay, how is this going to turn out? You might have had an idea, but you weren't sure. These churches are receiving their spiritual report cards on Sunday morning. So one of the elders gets up in front of the church and says, uh, I have a letter here from Jesus about you. That might get your attention. Uh, You might wake up a little bit for that. Uh, uh, It's a letter from Jesus. And you hear him praising you for things, and you're relieved, and you're encouraged. And then you hear, but this I have against you. And your stomach drops. Because this isn't man's words. This is God's word. What I find amazing about Jesus giving report cards to his church is this. Look how much he cares. Look how much he cares about the church. You don't think he cares what goes on here? You don't think he cares and sees you serving and you loving people? Oh, he sees it. You don't think he cares about your struggles that you're going through? Whatever it is. Friends, this is what keeps him up at night. This is what gets him up in the morning. This is what brings a smile to his face or concern to his heart, how you are doing. He cares deeply about the people he died for. That makes sense, doesn't it? If you die for someone, you're going to be invested in their life. And he is supremely invested in your lives. True or false, a good teacher takes time to praise a student and then to help them with the problems that they see, to to make them better. That's a good teacher. 
Jesus is the best teacher. And he loves us enough to praise us, encourage us. Here's where I see you doing well. And let me come alongside you and help you with the problems that I see. He wants us to graduate. When the bell rings and this life is over, he wants us to be with him in paradise. That's why he goes all this trouble. That's why he goes all this trouble to write these letters, point out very specific things that only he knows. So I know when you're out in the world all week, uh, you know, a lot of other things besides the church seem big. Job seems big. School education seem big. Uh, you know, sports seem big. Family might seem big. Church seems eh, a little boring. Huh? Just sort of gets the leftovers of our energy sometimes. Jesus doesn't feel that way. This is the thing. This is the thing. It is through the church that the manifold wisdom of God is now being made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Everyone in the invisible world, angels, demons, they all know this is it. That the power of God is revealed through you. And what goes on in true churches every Sunday morning and from Sunday to Sunday. They see that. He is making known, manifesting His power and grace to every, everyone in the invisible world that the church is the thing. Through the church. Do we see it like that? Things are not as they appear. That's what Revelation teaches us. Things are not always what they seem. What seems weak, lowly, insignificant to the world, and maybe to us sometimes, not to God. So we have to be careful reading these letters as interesting historical artifacts. Hmm, very interesting history lesson. I hope they listened to Jesus at that time, uh, but that's a long time ago. No, the number seven communicates to us that this is the completed church. This is the whole church. They are representing all of us, and what he says to them, he's saying to us. So we have to listen with a spirit of humility. Where, where are you encouraging me, Lord Jesus? Thank you for your grace. Where are you challenging me, Lord Jesus? Help me to turn and repent and change. Not, oh, I'm so glad she's here today. She really needs to hear this. Yep, mm -hmm. I've been talking to her about that, and I'm glad he said it. He said it, and look, I see her over there. That's not what Jesus wants for us. Now, you know, you care about people, that's great, but me first. Me first. What is Jesus saying to me? So I have three points today, praise, problem, and promise. I worked hard to get those P's in, so you're welcome. Jesus praises the church, he points out some problems, and he ends with a promise. And most of the letters will follow that general pattern with a few exceptions. So, number one, praise. Verse one. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So, Ephesus was a major city in the ancient world. Um, it was known as the metropolis of Asia. It's a port city. So, this is like the New York of the region. Okay, this is New York City. 
Uh, it was also the mother church to a lot of other churches in the region, so they were church planting. They were involved in all the other churches. They're, they're well-established. They're mature. Um, they're, they're theologically strong. Not to mention, Ephesus was closest to Patmos, where John was. So for a lot of reasons, it makes sense that this is the first stop on the journey. You remember, it's kind of a, a circle, the mail route. God loves mailmen, so he says, okay, I'm going to make it easy on you. Start in Patmos, that's closest to where John is, and then, you know, do your route. And then this letter is going to circle out to other churches in the area and beyond. Now, Jesus addresses each of these messages to the angel of the church. What do we do with that? Nobody knows. <laughs> that's the simple answer. Uh, we're not sure what it means. Um, and I can give you a long-winded explanation of all of the different views. I spent a lot of time reading this week. I'm not going to do that. I think most likely it has a double meaning. So on the one hand, probably a literal angel that is guarding, protecting each particular church. So it may very well be we have angels assigned to West Center Baptist Church who are guarding, protecting our church. That would be consistent with how angels are depicted in the book of Revelation. That's typically talking about literal angels. On the other hand, I think the angel represents the church. As we, read, as we read last week, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and Jesus holds them in his right hand. That indicates possession. That indicates uh, intimacy. It's personal to him. I think that is saying this is the church. This is his people. Not to mention angels don't sin. I mean, you have fallen angels, but, you know, as far as we know now, angels aren't still falling. Uh, they don't sin, so it would be odd to write the letter to an angel saying repent. That, that doesn't make sense to me. So I think there's probably a little ambiguity, a little intentional uh, a double meaning here of, Probably a literal angel and also just representing the church. So that's my best shot at it. Uh, if you have questions, Trevor will be back on Friday. Verse 2. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, who have called themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown, grown weary. Okay, these people are hard workers, right? I think you guys would respect them. They're doers. They're getting after it. Uh, church cleanup days are easy. Meal trains are easy. Church planning teams, sending them out, that's easy. I'm guessing their children's ministry is like well-stocked, okay? People are volunteering. The registrations are in. I got one nod there. Thank you. They're also solid doctrinally. They're also uh, uh, strong theologically. They, they've tested the spirits, as John says in 1 John. Did, is this biblical or is this unbiblical? Is this sound or is this heresy? When they hear unbiblical teaching, unbiblical preaching, it bothers them. They, 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 they get uncomfortable. They can't handle it. They don't like it. And I know for many of you, that's the case. It's just something, okay, you know your Bible. So many of you know your Bibles, and you hear something, and mm, that sounds off. 
not just because the guy's charismatic or the girl's charismatic and they're dynamic, but what does the Bible say? And you're testing it according to that standard. Jesus praises that. They're reading good books. This is not the Amazon Christian book list top ten, which I actually went and looked at. Okay, This is not Joel Osteen. This is not The Power of Positive Thinking. This is not some liberal book on Jesus' sacrifice being about he's giving you a great example to follow your dreams and die for what you believe in. They would say, no, 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 that's not what that's about. The bookstore at Ephesus is rock solid. Good books, good teaching, and that makes sense because they've had great preachers and great teachers come through. You know, it's, a, it's an all-star team. Paul stayed there for three years. Apollos, who's strong in teaching the word, Acts tells us. Um, the apostle John was there. Timothy is preaching and teaching in this region. So for them, it's like best sermon ever every Sunday. This is amazing. This is amazing. And Jesus praises them for this. Notice, don't miss that. Doctrine matters to Jesus. What you believe matters to Jesus. Will Jesus praise us if we say, you know, all that doctrine stuff, come on, does it really matter? Does it really, is it, you know, man, it's over my head anyway. Can't we all just agree to love Jesus? Would he praise us for that? No. He would criticize us for that mentality. This is the liberal church today. This is why you see beautiful churches when you go downtown Sioux Falls or you go to big cities, beautiful churches, even in our own town. And there's no one in them because they've moved away from what? The Bible, the inerrancy of Scripture, the authority of Scripture. And it's a problem in the evangelical world. The, the churches that we you know, would associate, call friends, Compromise, little compromises with the world that over time build to where I don't even recognize you anymore. You're not even talking about things in the Bible. You, you just avoid the stuff you don't like. Jesus is very concerned about this. So like the Ephesians, choose your teachers carefully. Choose your books carefully. Choose who you listen to carefully. Work hard at discerning, is this biblical? Because you have to understand, there are shepherds, there are sheep, and there are wolves. You, you need to know that. It's real. Love the shepherds, love the sheep, drive out the wolves. Do not let them in. Do not let them into your family. Do not let them into your church. You have a friend who's listening to a wolf? Talk to him. Verse 6, Jesus says, You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, we don't know exactly what they were teaching. doesn't tell us. But Jesus hates it. He detests it. When he smells it, it makes him gag. That's what bad teaching is like to him because bad teaching, bad preaching, bad theology, it always has consequences. It always hurts people. I mean, I know that it, 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 it conceptually, but I also know it personally because I talk to the people. 
who are hurt by bad theology and they come and they say, but I was told this. You told me this. You told me, or a pastor told me, someone told me, a book told me that if I just gave enough to their ministry, I would get that job. And I didn't. Pastor, what do I do with that? Does God not love me? Does he not care about me? And it rocks their faith. It rocks their world when you have bad teaching that you buy into and believe and then you go to the Bible and it's like, whoa, wait a minute. That's not what I was told. It hurts people. And Jesus loves his sheep and so he says, be careful. Good doctrine matters. Good teaching matters. And I would just say to some of you, I understand theology can be intimidating. Maybe this is not like your thing. It's hard to get into. It's hard to read. It's hard to to think deeply about some of these things. I would just say be open. Be open. Take, Take a baby step. You know, just try to read a little bit. Talk to someone you trust and respect. You know, I've always wondered about this. Can you help me with that? And, and I promise you, the Lord will bless your faith. He will bless that. Number two, the problem. That's the praise. Here's the problem. Verse five. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So sometimes churches with good doctrine can grow cold in love. You probably walked into them from time to time. Doctrinal statement checks out, uh, good online documents, pastors well-trained, and you walk in the door to a church and it's like, is there an eternal winter going on here? I think this church might be dead. There's no life. There's no spiritual life. There's no warmth. It may very well be that Jesus has removed the lampstand. Sometimes Christians get really excited about truth and forget about love. (laughs) Don't we? It's like we got theological bullets in the chamber ready to go and boom, boom, boom. Hey, I'm just speaking the truth. If you can't handle it, that's on you. Meanwhile, the person you're talking to is on the ground bleeding. You didn't help them. You hurt them. You didn't win them. You wounded them. Because you just wanted to, you know, fire your theological gun. I've been studying. I've been studying and I've been reading and I've been thinking, you're going to get it. You're going to hear about it whether you like it or not. You know, people were not attracted to Jesus just because he spoke the truth, which he did, but because they felt that he loved them. They knew that he loved them. Did you ever think about that? The Pharisees, the great teachers, the doctrine people, they're not attracted to Jesus. They hate him. But the sinners who don't know anything other than I'm a sinner, they're the ones coming to see Jesus. Why do you think that is? Did he he compromise on the truth? Did Did he... you know, just tell them what they wanted to hear. God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life, that's it. No, I mean, he, he told them the truth, but he told them in love, and they felt his heart. Do people feel your heart when you're speaking the truth to them? Do they, 
would they walk away from the conversation saying, they're for me. They're for me. Would your kids walk away from hard conversations, hard truth? And if you interviewed them after you had the conversation and said, do you believe your mom and dad are for you? What would they say? Did you feel love as much as you felt truth from mom and dad? What would they say? It's a great question for us to ask. Ephesians had grown cold in love for God and love for neighbor. And those two things, my friends, are always, always, always connected. Your relationship with God expresses itself in relationship with others. So if you're having trouble loving people, how's your relationship with God? Is the gospel coming alive to you? Are you amazed at God's grace? Because if you are, it will express itself in love for other people. So your relationship with loving God and loving others is like a fire's relationship to heat. If you've got a big, blazing fire, it's cooking, that's putting off a lot of heat, isn't it? But if you have a, a, a small fire, just barely lit, it's not putting off much heat. The same is true for your relationship with God. If you are in the Word, communing with God in prayer, just I'm satisfied in the Lord, the, the gospel is coming home to me every day, guess what? You're going to be loving people. You won't be able to help it because the love of God is coming home to you. It's expressing itself in the heat of your life. How do we do it? Jesus is challenging us. How do we respond? Well, the basic rule of thumb is love others the way God has first loved you. That sounds simple, but that's profound. <laughs> that is true. Paul told the Ephesians this. These Ephesians, 30 years earlier, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. So they're right there. You are loved. You are his children. Imitate that. And walk in love as, just like Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So as you have been loved, so love. Receive, enjoy, meditate, glory in Jesus' sacrificial love for you. Now, bend it out to others. Imitate him. Children should imitate good parents. That's what we're called to do. Now, we don't know exactly what Jesus is criticizing in the Ephesians, but let me just give you a few thoughts, a few possibilities um, where our love can grow cold. Number one, love with your money. Love with your money. Has God been generous to you? Lavish? Over-the-top, ridiculously good? For sure he has. For sure. Therefore, be generous with others. Generally, you know, I think we get the stewardship idea pretty well. Be wise, save, be careful, plan. Yeah, I think we got that pretty well. But understand this. You are not only called to steward your money, you are called to love with your money. It's not just about stewardship. It's about love. Many people carefully, scrupulously save money 
to make sure that at a later date they don't run out of it. But if you're unwilling to let go of it, to bless people in your life, your spouse, your family, your neighbors, your church, that's a problem. You know, Jesus did not have nice words for the person who put their money under a mattress. You know that he didn't say, oh, mm -hmm, very smart, good thinking, didn't lose anything. He called them wicked and lazy. He did not have nice words for the person who put their gift that he'd given them, their giftings, under a basket. Because, you know, I'm just real busy. Ah, I'm not really comfortable with doing that. That's, that's kind of outside of my box, so On the flip side, he praised the Good Samaritan, not just for having compassion, not just for feeling bad for the person in the road, but for buying them a meal, paying for their hotel, giving them money for whatever they needed. So if your money, if your resources, if your gifts are not being directed toward people to bless them, you may need to repent. That's a gospel problem. The gospel is not affecting you like it should. And I think it's really easy in our culture to drift this way. Because being careful, following a plan, having a budget, doing all those things, it just appears very wise. It appears very noble. It appears very good. And I'm not saying that those are bad inherently. But someone would look at that person and say, wow, they're really careful with their money. And they just... They're just on top of it. It may be they're not very loving with their money. Now, I think you can do both. I think you can be a good steward and also be loving, but let's just look in the mirror a little. It's also fashionable in our day, especially since the pandemic, and I don't know, in these divided political times, to justify buying up and hoarding resources in the name of love. I'm just taking care of my family. That's why I bought three months' worth of meat. I'm just looking out for my friends. That's why I cleared out the entire wall of Costco toilet paper. I needed seven carts, but I'm, you know, I'm looking out for people, just in case. I understand the world is a scary place. Maybe you watched a little too much Fox News that week. You know, whatever the case may be, got you a little wound up. But let's be clear. Hoarding is not loving to your neighbor. Therefore, it is sin. You are creating the shortage that you feel. You are driving up the cost for everyone else because you went out and bought way, way more than you need. Let me ask you, and I would pose this question to anyone who, who pushed on this. What if everyone followed your advice? What if everyone today went out and bought six months' worth of supplies? Where would we be? Somebody's getting the short end of that stick. Somebody's going to be left out. That sounds more to me like Darwinism than Christianity. Strong survive, baby. 
Who's smart enough to go out and get theirs before everybody else? That's the person that's going to live. It doesn't sound like Christianity. That sounds like survival of the fittest. Are we sure hoarding is done out of love? Are we sure it's not just selfishness driven by fear? But pastor, are you saying we shouldn't be wise? Are you saying it's not wise to hoard for your family? Stock up. You know, Proverbs does not say the beginning of wisdom is the fear of running out of food or money. It says the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And what does the Lord command you first and foremost? Love him and your neighbor. We've got to press it. We've got to press it into the corners of our life. Jesus is. Is our love growing cold with our money? Number two, love difficult people. It's easy to love people you like, isn't it? I love people I like. They're fantastic. Like I just love being with them. I love doing nice things for them. It's hard to love someone I don't like. It's hard to love someone that honestly annoys me. Does anyone have someone that annoys you? Yeah. Nobody look at your spouse. Please don't do that. It's hard. Now let me ask you this. Are we difficult and annoying to God? Yes, sirree. We are. Like some of us are on a, on a really like a special list of just like top ten most annoying, difficult people for God. And what is his response to us given our difficulty, our obstinacy, uh, uh, for Israel, it was they were stiff-necked. You know, they just would not do what God said. His response is to love us. God loves loving, difficult people. Jesus loves them. He has not avoided you. He has not kept his distance. He doesn't duck when he sees you in the grocery store. Okay, he comes up to you. He loves you. So who is it? Who is difficult for you? Who annoys you? <laughs> if the gospel is getting through in your life, you will choose to push through that and love them. Now, you don't have to be best friends. That's not what I'm saying. But are you ready to love them when you have an opportunity? Are you open to it? If not, you may need to repent. Number three, love by taking initiative. It's easy to be passive and guarded in your relationships, isn't it? Like, uh, I can relate, you know. It, it's Somebody had to tell me once in a small group, like, hey, you know, you need to talk. Like, I just sit there and take it all in, observe. You know, it's like look wise because I don't say anything. It's easy to be guarded. It's easy to be passive. But remember the gospel. Who took initiative in your relationship with God? God did. God did. You had the do not disturb sign up. Man, you were ghosting Jesus' calls. And when he finally got through, it was like, this mailbox is full. And he kept calling. He kept knocking. He kept coming. Because the gospel by nature is proactive. Jesus is never flat-footed. He's never on his heels. He's always moving toward you, even right now. 
Some of you, he's moving toward you. That you're here and you're being exposed to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is in this place. He's moving toward you always. And I know it's really hard for some of you to do this, to take initiative, to reach out. But there is power in the gospel. Do you believe it? There's power in the gospel to put yourself out there because here's the deal. Even if you get rejected, they never respond to your text. They say, no, I can't meet. Whatever. You're rejected. Do you know who's already accepted you? God Almighty. You are accepted in Jesus Christ. It is finished. There's no condemnation for you. You have the love of the Father in the Son forever. So what can they do to you really? What can someone do to you by, you know, hurting your feelings by not responding to your initiative? I mean, yeah, that hurts, but in an ultimate sense, you can retreat back to, I know who does love me, no matter what, who sees me as I really am, all my flaws, all my sins, all my problems, and chooses to love me. That, that's unshakable. You are unmovable if you have that in your life, if you are a Christian, if you have the gospel. You're free to take risks, to, do, to invite people over for a meal, even if it makes you very, very uncomfortable. <laughs> even if it's like my house, is a, it, it's a mess, and I don't even have enough time to clean it, and they're going to come over. What are they going to think of me? You are free to take a risk. Invite someone to coffee just to ask how they're doing. I have no agenda. How are you doing? How can I pray for you? Send them a text. Write them a note. Drop by. Say hi. You're free to do that. The gospel frees you. All things work together for good for you. So no matter what happens, you're like, get off my lawn. So what? Who cares if they have a shotgun? I mean, probably go at that point, but just it doesn't matter in a spiritual sense. You see what I'm saying? Do you feel that? the power of the gospel that would set you free to just take initiative and love people. That's the way God has treated you. So imitate him. If you rarely or never initiate with other people, you may need to repent. You may have forgotten your first love. And folks, Jesus is serious about this stuff. If Ephesus does not turn from being all head, no heart, he will remove their lampstand. Okay? They're not going to be a church anymore. He's going to take the Holy Spirit. He's going to cut them off from the vine. And they may still have church on the sign out front, but Jesus ain't going to be there. This is serious. Lastly, the promise. That's the problem, but thankfully Jesus doesn't end there. He ends with a promise. He motivates us with a promise. Verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So very much like a parable, if you're familiar with the Gospels, of kind of, you know, it's veiled to some, it opens to some. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. What's the background here? 
Because of their sin, Adam and Eve were barred from eating the tree of life. You remember in Genesis? Okay, there was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was the testing tree. And then there was the tree of life. That was the reward tree. You pass the test, you get to have the reward. You get to eat from that tree. They sinned. They get sent out of God's temple, out of his garden. An angel with a flaming sword blocks them from coming back. They're barred from eating of the tree of life. So God wanted to give them that, wanted to give them everlasting joy and life, but they failed the test. So now for him to promise to you and me, I will let you eat of that tree. How is that possible? Because we sin too. How can he make that promise? On what basis? Well, between Eden and paradise, there's a greater tree. There's a greater tree that was put in the ground at Calvary. The cross of Jesus Christ. As Peter says that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Friends, the tree of life, the fullness of God's presence, complete healing of your mind, body, soul. It's only because of the cross. It's all because of the cross. How can we not love him? How can we not serve him? How can we not love other people the way he has loved us? That he would do that. You. I can't give an answer as to why. He loves you because he loves you. That's who he is. And you conquer and you will get to paradise with him by remembering that. How much he has loved you. And I'm going to continue loving other people no matter what because of the cross. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that there is not simply a a, a tree that we cannot eat from and a tree ahead of us that we are never going to get to, but through your death and resurrection, we have hope that what Adam and Eve were meant for, we in Christ will one day experience being in paradise with you and eating from the tree of life, a tree that gives life to all the nations, all the peoples of the world, now flooding in to your kingdom through the good news. We thank you, Lord, that by your grace, we will be there. Help us to conquer. Help us to overcome. Help us to persevere. In Jesus' name, amen.